Hi, I'm Neil Evans. Welcome to Every Quarter. What makes you laugh? Is it the observational stand-up of Louis C.K.? Sketches on Saturday Night Live? Mark Maron's podcast that you always listen to before this one? Uh, you see, comedy is subjective. What makes me laugh probably won't make you laugh, and humor is rarely an acquired taste. It's not like you turn 30 and suddenly like Seinfeld. Well, maybe that's a bad example. Uh, the point is, you either get the joke or you don't. In the early 90s, the Fairley Brothers struck gold with a string of blockbusters that seemed to make everyone laugh. Dumb and Dumber, There's Something About Mary, Kingpin, Outside Providence, Shallow Howl, Fever Pitch. You couldn't escape their slapstick premises and earnest storytelling that made them two of the most successful writers and directors in Hollywood. They've worked with comic icons like Bill Murray, Jim Carrey, Ben Stiller, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Jimmy Fallon. But as Bobby Fairley, class of 1977, recently recounted at a Phillips Academy All-School meeting, the brothers had no real movie-making aspirations growing up and sort of fell into the trade after a few failed ventures in Los Angeles. Upon his first visit back to Andover in over 40 years, Bobby sat down with me to talk about the current state of comedy, how to be funny in today's politically correct climate, and what he learned from being kicked out of Andover. Thanks for coming. This is thanks. great. You yeah, know? thanks for having me. It's uh, it's fun to be back here at, uh, at Andover, and uh, you sure. know I haven't been here in a while, so it's really kind of bringing back a lot of memories, good yeah. memories. So maybe talk about that a little bit. You know, you had a great all school meeting speech today. Yes. I think, you know, I think that's really I felt like it was good. I, uh, you know, I talked about I w- the my last day here in 1970. Uh, I think it was six. Or, I think it was six. I was supposed to graduate in '77, but sure. uh, I didn't make it past December. I got uh, I got in trouble and I was uh, I was expelled. So I left unceremoniously. But it, that's why it's so much fun to be back. It's because you know I was asked to leave and then I was asked to come back. And so it's made good. Full circle. <laughs> and Definitely. And I think it was the message behind it too was really powerful. And I think we all make mistakes, but it's how we come out of them. You know. So I think that is true. And, and I, you know, it's one of those things that probably people think they know because they've heard it uh but uh and you don't say oh i just made this colossal mistake so i'm going to you know come out of it like that it's not anything that you that you intentionally do but you will be judged by how you react to what life throws at you you know you just i mean that's that's kind of a a benchmark for people and uh all the times i got my world rocked uh which and that was one of them uh it just kind of puts you on a new path, and you don't know where that path's going to take you. And that's that's what I was trying to, you know, get across to the kids: is you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's great to have a plan; plans are great, but you're liable to get, you're liable to get pushed off in a different direction, one way or the other. And then so just go with it and right. run with it. Don't 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 always try to fight to get back where you think you were supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that a lot of the students today think they need to be on a certain path mm-hmm. to be what's quote successful and I think the journey is kind of half the fun and sort of what what do you do when all your expectations are leading to one thing and you don't get into college that you want or you know you want to do this one thing and how do you persevere you know that's sort of even more important in, in life than checking off those boxes of you know where you went to school and absolutely yeah. And so many of these kids, they are, they're, they're under tremendous pressure because they're here at Andover, you know, this great school, and 
they're probably getting it from their parents and their peers and even from themselves they're thinking oh I have to go to this other spectacular school from here and if that doesn't work then it's you know I'm a failure or something it's like no just just do the best you can and you don't know you know a lot of people get turned down at great schools I don't know I don't know why uh, but it's okay you know but many incredibly successful people have come out of schools that aren't Harvard that aren't Yale and I don't mean anything against Harvard and Yale but it's like you don't know you don't know what what's going to happen and uh, so just go with it you know just it, it's not all going to work out as well as you had hoped so don't let that be don't let that get you down sure I think that's a great part of your story too is you didn't intend to be a director it I, just happened you know it's an opportunity it's something that you came to sort of later in life, you know. I had gotten into yeah. my late twenties, uh, you know, which is a long way. I was, you know, five, six, seven years out of college before I, I even tried anything to do with the movie business. Now, so that had never occurred to me. But I was out in LA and had been with a couple of, you know, ventures that took me out there that both failed. You know, we gave it our best, but it didn't work. But I, it got me to LA while I was out there. I figured I'll try my hand at screenwriting. My brother was there, and we. Were, we wrote together, and it was something that, that that we thought we were pretty good at. All of a sudden, we hadn't it hadn't even occurred to us. It's just that we were sort of liberated by the fact that we had failed at these other uh, at these other ventures. If we had if they had hit, we certainly wouldn't have tried our hand at, at screenwriting. So it's just one of those things that like you don't you don't quite know. One of the things that we tried to do when we when we started screenwriting is we we tried to get onto the uh, the Seinfeld show as uh, as uh, uh, you know part of the writing team, and we went in and we auditioned with them and all that, and they bought a couple of our pitches, which was great. But they said, "Nah, we don't really have any room on the you know to be on the staff right now," and it was a great disappointment to us uh, at the time because we just loved that show. But honestly, even looking back at that, it was like, well, if we got on that show, we wouldn't have made the movies that we made. You know, it's just we had to go back to the drawing board and we wrote some more scripts and you know one of the scripts was Dumb and Dumber so it's just we wouldn't have wrote, written that if uh, if we were on that staff because I know we wouldn't we just wouldn't have we wouldn't have had time we, they would have been picking our brains and so it's like you don't know sometimes it seems like it like something just went wrong but it might have just gone right you just don't quite know it yet cool so maybe walk us through what a producer does in Hollywood. You know, you see the, the bunch of those names on the opening credits. Um, talk about the different roles that you play from a producer to a director to the writer. How does okay, that all play I'll out? I'll do it in the order of importance, though, sure. for me. Not yeah. the order of importance for the, uh, for the industry. But sure. uh, the most important thing when, when we're making one of our movies is, the, uh, is the, the, the script itself, the writing of the script. And that's what uh, my brother Peter I, and I have both been most proud of, I think, because writing a script is really hard work. It just, it, it's very challenging, and it's really challenging to come up with one that's original and clever and uh, not, not a, you know, a carbon copy of what happened last year, you know, so it, it, it's tough to be fresh, and so that's always a challenge. Uh, after that, you turn it over to a director, and, you know, for us, we direct our own stuff, but not every writer directs. Uh, and not every, certainly not every director writes, but the director will take that script and uh, try to get the performance out of it that the writer had hoped. That you know, they'll he'll try to bring it to life. He or increasingly she, the female directors are 
really in right now, and there's going to be a lot more of them. Uh, the producer is the person who who helps the the director who 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 either gets the script and and finds the director or finds the money or he's the guy really who who just helps the whole process. He's not the writer or the director, but he's he's the problem solver. He's the the person who uh, is trying to figure out when something goes wrong, either in the the, the in the production in the in, uh, of the of the uh, making the movie. He he's the one who would step in and uh, and try to and try to fix it. So we talk about your journey of sort of discovering this Hollywood industry later in your career, right? Um, but your sensibility was obviously formed, you know, early on. You know, you, you gravitated towards comedy. Who are some of the people that were influential in your sort of uh, taste making when you were young and in, in, in the early '90s? Uh, I think most of the, the the biggest influence on on our comedic career was probably just the people we grew up around. We, you know, in Rhode Island, there's a lot of there's a lot of characters, right on from the the mayor of Providence down. You know, it's just one of those states where, for some reason, you'll find a lot of you know what we call characters, so the people that are a little out of the norm. And my brother and Peter and I just love those those kind of people. And there was a lot of funny stories that went with them. And so from those stories, the stories we heard growing up about things that happened to our friends or to the guy down the road or to our friends' friends, and we we just you know kind of kept those stories and and would weave one or two of them into our stories and uh, it's, that way we know that it's true we know that there's something truthful about it but then of course you exaggerate them to make them a little more comedic but real life was the biggest influence on us uh, and I do think it was beneficial as a for a comedy writer to be growing up in Rhode Island great yeah I think one one thing I love about a lot of your movies is the story you know there's the iconic gags there's the there's the physical comedy but there's always a there's always a plot you know, and yeah, heart, and heart behind <laughs> it, so that you know it's not just gag after gag after gag. And you know, how, tell me how do, how do those jokes translate to a story, or when does the script sort of become real life? Uh, well, like if we if you if we look at our movie, there's something about Mary. It's like it is. It's you know, at its heart, it's a very sweet story about a guy who you know was in love with this girl that he went to high school with, and she. They had a tremendously uh, unlucky uh, prom date, and she got away, and he never saw her again. But he never forgot about her, and he's he, later on in life he tracks her down, and he, he and he's still in love with her, and and, it, and you know it still works out. So it, that's a sweet story, but there's a whole bunch of gags in that movie, of course, that camouflage the fact that <laughs> it is a sweet story, and instead people think, oh my God, it's just you know this goofy comedy and all that but it, it, it's got to be a nice balance of both if, if you put too much heart in it it might feel sappy and if you put too many gags in it there's well then people will get tired and they're like they don't even really care about the ending so it, it that's that's the trick and is is keeping a nice balance where between the heart and the humor right and dumb and dumber is a road trip movie with best friends Right. Yeah, you know, like you that elevator pitch is it's easy, but it's the characters that bring them to life. And so I think, you know, at the core, you know, people may remember, you know, certain scenes, but they're re extremely watchable and timeless. So 
Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, there's a there's a uh, scene early on in Dumb and Dumber where yeah, you know, obviously these Harry and Lloyd are, you know, two goofballs and extraordinarily dumb. Uh, and uh, Lloyd wants to bring the suitcase uh, out to the the girl that he drove to the airport, and she's out in Aspen, and he has to talk Harry into coming with him. And during the t- his his attempt to talk Harry into it, he he. They're in their apartment, and he sort of goes over to the window, and he and he gets emotional for a minute. He talks about how he feels like he's a loser, he doesn't have anything, and he doesn't want to always be like that. And it's not a funny scene at all. And the studio, who had you know had paid for us to finance the movie, they're in the editing room with us. They're saying, "Why, why is this in here? Take it out. It doesn't it doesn't belong in a comedy." And our feeling was. It, it makes the guy a little bit more real, and a little bit more real is good because you feel a little bit something. If they're too goofy, uh, you just you know you're not really going to care. They're just cartoon characters. But if you see that the guy really does hurt, that it, it's going to go a long way. And by the way, in the next scene, uh, the two of them are selling a dead bird to a bird to a blind kid in a sure. wheelchair. So <laughs> it was a good time to like. Have the audience say, I like this guy. You, you ground him, you're sympathetic, yeah. and then he sells the yeah, Petey. Exactly. Petey yeah, Petey, right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Uh, I mean, maybe what, is, what are some of those challenges, though, with the studio? You know, you have your script, you have your vision, and then you have your partner in the studio that is re- releasing and distributing the product. I know sometimes they can interfere a little bit sure, on the sure, final they product? Do. They, how's it, that sort of push and pull relationship? There's a lot of fear in in uh, in that business where people are, even in the studio, they're afraid that they're going to be replaced if they don't, you know, they don't get too many, to make too many movies uh, that turn into flops before they'll be shown the door. So they have to be very careful. I think they'd rather just have a mild hit than try to risk making a smash hit because a smash hit could also be a, a colossal failure, and it's it's easier to just play it down the middle. In the early, you know, in the '60s and stuff, you'd have movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I don't know if that was the '60s, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Going back a few years, well, you know, at the end of that movie, everyone loved Butch and Sundance, even though they're bank robbers and all. But they were, you know, they were the leads. And at the end of the movie, they get they get shot dead. Okay, if they made that movie today. They wouldn't be shot dead, right? Because they bring it into a, what they call a test audience, and they'd show it to them, and they'd say, "How did you know you like the movie? And what do you think about the ending?" And someone's going to raise their hand and say, "Well, I was kind of upset that they got shot." And so the studio would come to the filmmaker and say, "See, the audience didn't like that they got shot. Let's have them live." And it's like, "Well, that's not the story. Right? That wasn't the story of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. They were bank robbers. They, they did have to, you know, they paid their." <laughs> they paid their price at the end, but they don't make those kind of stories anymore. And it has to do with that process of people want to. They're just going to tell you what they saw last year, what worked at the the last movie they went to, and so it's hard to come up with fresh stuff because they wanted. They're going to stick to a formula. It becomes formulaic and sort of cookie cutter. Yeah, I think the problem that I've seen, at least, is that it's become a business. It's tent poles. It's comic book movies it's known commodities that people just want to interact with so you know i've lamented sort of the loss of the the pg-13 comedy or that sort of middle of the road movie that is a great story that has some heart and has some comedy that is not going to be the blockbuster but 
still will connect and potentially be, you know, the next 40-year-old virgin or oh, those absolutely. movies. So where where do you sit with that? How do you try to make a movie in today's climate? Well, the whole movie business is, uh, you know, is, is in flux because of that. It is all big tentpole movies, action heroes, superheroes, uh, lots of CGI, all that kind of stuff. Nobody's making just original stories anymore. They're either sequels or, or, or those those products that I just uh, talked about. Uh, and it, a, a certain movie, price, uh, movies made in a certain price range, and that's generally around, I don't know, let's say $5 million to $50 million. You know, if they're, uh, they're, they're not being made. They're either making a $200 million movie or a, you know, they might roll the dice on a really small, low-budget thing. But the in-between the in ones, and that's where most comedies were, certainly romantic comedies and those PG-13 comedies, they, they fell into that medium range that they're not making those movies anymore. And it, it, you know, it, So it's hard to get a movie made right now. I'm hoping that it's just a uh, temporary thing, that it's cyclical and it'll come back, because people are going to be starved for, for laughs sooner or later. But right now, the not many comedies out there in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think there's a void. You know, I think there's a, the audience wants that thing, and I find myself going more to TV to find that. I think there's tons of great stuff going on on yeah, TV. Yeah, you're not alone there. And, Everyone's and watching TV, yeah. That's sort of the hot medium, but uh, have you thought about doing anything in television? Or, oh, I yeah. know you have experience in it. but Yeah, you have to think about it now because, yeah. again, there, there's so few things being done in, on the movie side of things uh, and so much original content on the TV side that if you have an original idea, yeah, you're better off to go to, uh, to Netflix or... Showtime or HBO, they're making, they're the ones really making original content, and the movie studios are not. Uh, do you find that they're more receptive to original ideas? That, you know, they'll, they're, it seems to me that they're willing to take a chance and invest in people's vision and people that have something to say. Oh, they're absolutely yeah. more, uh, you know, those people that are taking the chances. Uh, they have a, a, a business model that that's sort of, you know, it's great for them in, in that they, they're making them at a smaller price. They are. Uh, so, but all the actors and everyone are shifting over to TV and because the, before the, there was a day that they wouldn't want to be in TV because they thought it was, I don't know, they thought it was beneath them, but it's not anymore uh, because of the original, you know, content going on over there. But you know what? No one's getting paid as well. So it's a, it's a little different. Uh, it's, it, and I think there's a lot of people that just, like I said, they're in flux. They don't know for sure what's going to happen down the road. But these TV, uh, these TV networks are definitely here to stay. Yeah, uh, I can name about five shows that I'm watching now. I can't name a single comedy that I've seen in the theater. You know, recently, it's just kind of interesting that that paradigm shift that's happening. Yeah. Um, so you've worked with a ton of talented and successful actors. You know, Jim Carrey, Bill mm -hmm. Murray. Jack Black, Ben Stiller. I'm just curious, what do they all have in common? Uh, fear, fearless, not fear, fearlessness, uh, lack of fear. That, you know, that's that, that's what it is. They're, that's what makes them so funny. Is they're 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 not afraid to do you know try things that other people maybe not want to try. You know, we never work with uh, Will Ferrell, but every time I see him, I just he makes me laugh because he he'll he'll do the silliest things and he puts his ego aside for a second and. He's willing to look, you know, silly, and uh, consequently, he's funny. Not everyone's funny because they're silly, but those guys are. They just, 
if, if you're a little bit too ego-driven or afraid to look the fool for a second, yeah, you're going to have a hard time making people laugh. Yeah, I think it's the commitment. Same it's commitment. As, same That's as the word. fearlessness. That's is that <laughs> yeah. You commit to the bit or you're yeah. all in and you, know, you watch Jim Carrey and you watch Will Ferrell and you watch these people that just lose it in the moment and become absorbed and that sells it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but we have been lucky. Uh, I, I mentioned in my speech today that the guy who, who breaks us up the most is Bill Murray. He still does. You know, he's just a living legend, uh, and I think we're lucky to have him. He just, every time, and he's a good actor. They're, all these guys that you mentioned, they're all good actors. Sure. People don't maybe think of them that way because they think of them as, as comedic actors, but in order to be a good comedic actor, you you got to be a pretty good actor actor, and, uh, and Bill Murray's definitely one. Cool. Um, you know, we're talking about comedy here, and uh, I feel like comedy always kind of evolves with the culture. And right now, it feels like we're in a very safe mode, like you said, right down the middle with a lot of these movies, and very PC. You know, everyone's you know, gets offended over a joke, or people lose their jobs over tweets, and boycotting Ghostbusters because they just don't like the, the female cast. You know, how do you be funny in 2017, and how do you toe that line of what may not be appropriate, but also you want to push the push the limits on things. Boy, you, you you're hitting it on the head. This is, this is exactly what's uh, what's been happening in the in the marketplaces. There is a feeling of you can't do that, you can't say that. You know, it's, it's political correctness, and you know a lot of it's there for good reason. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any of it. Yeah. You know, we, we, everyone knows that there there must be a degree of it, but. Right now, people are like really thin-skinned, and it is hard in the uh, in the comedy world, even the like the stand-up comedy world. I have, my daughter's doing stand-up comedy out in L.A. She's just oh, yeah. fresh out of college, hmm. and she's relaying these stories to me where things that you you know, comedy's like you got to be able to make fun of things. You got to be able to sort of poke fun, and yeah. you know, there's sacred cows and all that, and. Boy, everyone's just so touchy right now. You, it, it, that it's hard. You don't know what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, so it is kind of that we're in a, we're in a funny period, and I do hope it sort of that we we come to that it changes a little bit. I think it's a little a little too sensitive right now. So how do we push the line? You know, you know, and I think you know if we put out something about Mary today, it might not be accepted yeah like it's kind of a weird yeah like i don't know how the culture can dominate the arts and influence things to where it almost becomes censorship now uh i think that there is some funny stuff still going on i I don't know those answers if i did (laughs) i'd probably be running a studio uh but there are some funny things going on out there uh it's just I don't know. It's just not the traditional stuff from from years past. I think that right now in the in the world of female comedy, there's there's a whole lot of of new uh, actresses and things like that that are really that are really funny. You know, the girls on coming off Saturday Night Live are are definitely as funny as anyone out there. You know, the Melissa McCarthy's, Kristen Wiig's, uh, the McKinnon girl Kate McKinnon, like yeah, Kate McKinnon. Yeah. It's like they're as funny as anyone. They mean they mean definitely mean. To a movie uh, as much as any guy does, any comedic guy, and that's this is sort of a first, and that's great. You know, that's great because yeah. they are funny, uh, and there's some good scripts for them, and so it's, it is a little bit of their time to uh, to be te- you know 
have have the movies and uh you know that's fun uh so i hope I, i'd like to see that continue definitely uh so who else makes you laugh these days you know what do you find funny uh, you know, with the, the with our political uh, world around us, it's like it's a little. It is a little funny because some some of the truth is stranger than fiction, right? Yeah. Some of them, it's like like you can't make this stuff up, but it's it's actually true. So uh, uh, the comedian, I mean, the uh, politicians make me laugh. Who makes me laugh? <laughs> well, I think it's like I said uh, just said a minute ago. The girls are making me laugh right now. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think uh, McCarthy, great. Yeah, Kate McKinnon. Like, I don't know why she hasn't been a lead yet. Yeah, you know, like. Well, I think I it's love, probably you know. just because she's on that show. She will yeah. be when they get off. Sure. Uh, you know, when their time's up, that keeps them real busy. Sure. And so, but but she's got. I think she's got some movies coming out this summer. Uh, I'm sure she's been, you know, keeping as busy as she can. But Saturday Night Live's a full time job too, and they and they give her a lot of the work. Sure. So she's she's always in the. Bit. So she has to save some of her energy for that because sure. she's very good at it. And they've had a great renaissance this year with everything. Absolutely, so. <laughs> it's been a, it's yeah. been a definitely a big uptick for those guys, in my opinion. But yeah. Uh, yeah, real funny. Everyone, you know, wants to know if you didn't watch it on Saturday Night Live. By Sunday morning, you're going to be hearing about the bits definitely. they did. So yeah. that that's like the old days. Yeah, it's great. Um, let's take it a little bit local here. You've had some great luck with the Boston sports scene yeah. here recently. Uh, fever pitch on the field for the big World Series win with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. Recently did the commercial with Tom Brady and his right. five rings. I'm going to talk a little bit about that first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk fever pitch. Uh, sure. Fever pitch was the only script that uh, my brother Pete and I ever directed that we hadn't at least rewritten. Mm -hmm. you, know, you either wrote or rewrote, but... Uh, this was from a uh, it was from a Nick Hornby novel, and it, the original novel was about a guy who was really obsessed with his soccer team. Yeah. But uh, these two really really good screenwriters, uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, uh, great names by the way, uh, uh, had written that had adapted it to baseball. And when we read the, they're not directors, so we we read the script, and it was about our beloved Red Sox. And you know the story was though that they. The Red Sox break this guy's heart every year, mm -hmm. but every right after that he breaks the, they break uh, his heart. He's still optimistic about next year, and his girlfriend, who was a little concerned that he was too much into the sports team, when she sees that he's an optimist, that he he really he believes that next year will be a good year, he kind of wins her over, and that's that was what the you know the bulk of the story was about. But the year we made it, two thousand four, well, don't you know the Red Sox went and won the World Series as we were shooting it. And so it changed the whole dynamic of what the story was. It became a big Hollywood ending, you know, and then Poppy hits a homer and they win the World Series, and it, and it was that. And, and we had to change it all on the fly. And it was so much fun for us to be there at Boston and to be witnessing it and all that. But honestly, I don't think it helped the movie because hmm. outside of Boston, people were like, ah, I've already seen the Red Sox win. I don't want to sure. see Jimmy Fallon and, and Drew Barrymore, you know, in some story about that. And it, it just changed. We had to change. And uh, I don't think it helped the movie. But uh, at the same time, they won. And then they won a couple of times since then. So uh, it was just, it was it was fun being a part of it. Quick follow-up on that. So why'd you cast Jimmy Fallon, who's a Yankees fan? Good question. And uh, we, we've gotten some uh, some some flack for that sure. uh 
By the time we came on board, Drew Barrymore and her uh, and her company called Flower Films, they uh, they were already attached and were they were the ones out sure. looking for the director, and it was Drew's project. Yeah. Uh, and so we said, geez, we'd love to do it, Drew, because we love the Red Sox and we understand the Red Sox and and all that. And she had a very very short list of actors that she wanted to work with and at the top of the list was Jimmy Fallon. Now we like Jimmy a lot and we met with him and we, we you know we questioned whether or not we could sell him as a Boston guy and uh, it was just compared to yeah, I guess who our other choices were we thought Jimmy uh, Jimmy's a talented guy sure. and uh, so we went with him and we like working with Jimmy and we thought that he's really a remarkable talent and I think it more now than ever watching his yeah. show and all He's fun, and uh, Drew loved him, and you know it's just one of those things. He was he he's, he was the, the the right guy at the time for us. Yeah, great. Um, so, the Brady Five Rings. Right. How did that go down? Did you pitch it to him to to you have some sort of premonition about how it would all go down, or how? Uh, well, I, I got <laughs> asked to direct this occasionally. Yeah. I'll shoot you know commercials and stuff, and uh, I have some friends over at uh, Shields MRI Company, and they're uh, they were about to do a new commercial, and they had Tom Brady in it. And they were—I was happy that they asked me to direct uh, Tom in their in their new ad. Now, the ad was that Tom, who had his four Super Bowl rings, uh, is at the MRI uh, office, and you have to put all your jewelry in a locker. And, and so he, the woman says, "Geez, do you have any uh, jewelry with you?" He's, "Oh, just these here." And he holds up his four Super Bowl rings, which of course is silly that he's out there wearing it, but. She said, oh. And so she puts it in the locker, and then she said to him, uh, is that all? And he said, well, for now. And that was at the beginning of the season, okay? Yeah. And so uh, it was very, you know, we liked it, and he, he was good in it, and we were very happy with it. But one of the things I was, we were thinking is that what if they win again? What if they win again this year? And so while he was there, I approached him, I, and I said, Tom, if, if they win again, you know, there's going to be a, if you win again, he goes, oh, we're going to win again. I <laughs> said, well, you'll have a fifth ring, so maybe we should just do this other commercial just in case. And uh, he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, so he was just, he had that much belief that they were going to pull it off that he, we, he did the fifth ring. And so she said, oh, do you have, it? it's the same commercial, but at the end she said, oh, do you have, uh, is that all you have? And he said, oh, wait a minute. And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the fifth ring. And she says, we're going to have to get you a bigger locker, you know. And uh, he's and his answer to that was, Roger that. for you know, to, Was that an ad lib? A little bit of a throw at uh, Well, we that? gave it to him. Okay. So, <laughs> but he's like, listen, I'll say that, but you can't only use that, me saying that, if, if we win the sure. fifth one. If we don't win the fifth one, I, I don't deserve to be able to say yeah. that. And so once he, uh, they did win in that incredible Super Bowl this year, he says Roger that at the end, which is a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a jab to uh, Roger Goodell, who has it coming or had it coming. Sure. And it was all good fun, and uh, it was a big hit. They, you know, the the commercial, I, I think they only showed it like maybe once or two. They didn't show it very many times, but it, it got so much attention because the, they had just won the Super Bowl, and and Brady was willing to give a jab at, at Goodell that it. It was one of those commercials that it was a small local commercial, but it got more attention than some of the real big commercials that went exactly. national and yeah. cost millions and millions of dollars. And this one didn't. It's good. It's the, it's the 
the copy, it's the it's the message, you know. Yeah, Roger goes, goes viral. Um, great. Uh, you've mentioned that you're currently working on a musical uh, adaptation of something about Mary. Can yeah, you talk about that a little bit. Well, in the on the Broadway's big these days, thanks to Hamilton and some other ones, but particularly Hamilton just has just blown up. Uh, everyone wants to see plays again, and uh, one of the things that's happening, of course, is that people are taking these old. Uh, titles that we know and have adopted them to uh, screenplays. Uh, Groundhog's Day is a big one going on. It just came out right now. But we want to take our old movie, There's Something About Mary, and adapt it to a Broadway musical. We think it sets up perfectly. It's a nice romantic story. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a sweet story. And we think that we could come up with some really funny songs that would, uh, that would fit right in there and be suitable for the... Uh, the play, much like the songs in uh, as a template, I would say, in the Book of Mormon, yep. written by uh, the, the guys who do South Park, and that was they did such a good job making making people laugh and telling a story, and that's what we're trying to do. My brother and I. It's the first time we have written music, or you know, mainly the lyrics to music, but uh, it, so it's pretty challenging and all, but it's a lot of fun too, and we just love that original project so much, Mary, that it's just fun to be back in there. Uh, trying to come up with something new. That's great. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of new, new exciting projects. It's, you know, kind of, it's a bookend, but it's also a continuation, you know. It's always trying new things and right. uh, staying inspired. So it's good. Mm -hmm. um, so you're back, on and back at Andover for yeah. the day. How, how's it all feeling? Feels good. I get to come with, you know, like I said, I, I left and... <laughs> I left unceremoniously, and uh, you know my mom and my uh, dad, God rest his soul. I, uh, you know, they uh, they were disappointed that day. So to come back here with my mom, and yeah, and, your mom was here. She was like, she was just so happy that you know that it was. I don't know. I'm happy too, but it was just fun for me to have her see that you know to come back here and that it didn't uh, life didn't end that day. Definitely. Well. Thank you for being here. Hope this is the first of many times for you to come back on campus. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Great. Good Thanks, talking to you. Yeah, you too. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover. The show is made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Association, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. You can listen to the show on iTunes. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, also check us out at podcast.andover.edu. I'm Neil Evans.